This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. Think about even Western literature, you know, like it's always about the son who's gone looking for the father, like in the Odyssey, you know, you know, we're all wandering around trying to, to remove the sense of forsakenness. You know, these are strategies for trying to make sense of your own life and to find the love you believe you're unworthy of. Hey everybody, welcome to The Calling. I'm Richard Clark, your host, the online managing editor for Christianity Today. It's just me today, Morgan's not here to help me explain who we have on. It's a pretty interesting episode. Uh, actually, this episode is was super weird to record, uh, not in an unpleasant, bad sort of way, but in like a very insightful way, I thought. It has a kind of an arc to it. Um, this is an interview with Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile, uh, the authors of The Road Back to You, an Enneagram journey to self-discovery. If you haven't heard of the Enneagram, it's not like as scary as it sounds. I know a lot of people immediately make that connection to the pentagram. It's not related. <laughs> um, the Enneagram is basically a personality type thing. It's a it's a sort of a tool that's used to learn more about yourself and the people around you and and uh to help you sort of grow as a person. I would highly recommend you check out this book. It's a really good place to start in terms of being sort of a, a primer for uh learning what the Enneagram is and sort of what number you are. So it goes like numbers one through Nine. One of the things you'll notice in the interview is um, it sort of, sort of happened in the middle of a conversation I was having with them about, you know, whether I was a four or a three or a seven. And it's the, the experience of like finding out what your number might be and then sort of recognizing yourself in that number. It's just a weird experience. It's It's kind of hard to describe other than um, it's a lot like finding out you're an INFJ, except there's an added spiritual component, and there's also an added like self-awareness component that I think comes with some negative feelings that are pretty fascinating to me, because I think those negative feelings can be really valuable and can represent growth. So I would highly recommend you check it out. They sort of broke the podcast in a good way. Uh, one of the things about... The calling is that when I interview people, there is self-awareness for the first time sometimes between me and the guests. There's sort of like I'm drawing things out of them that maybe they didn't anticipate talking about or even weren't super aware of themselves or at least hadn't said out loud, uh, certainly not in a public interview space. Here, there's a lot of self-awareness in terms of like why they struggle with certain things and why they even like you'll there's a moment where the, you'll hear them respond to 
what their struggle is in completely different ways. And she will, Suzanne actually articulates really well why that is. And it's because they are just, they see the world differently. They're completely different people. And just narrowing down on like why people see the world the way that they do and how they see the world is a big part of what was really interesting about this interview. Uh, if you're interested in reading more about the Enneagram, sort of in article form, the next issue of Christianity Today coming out in a couple of weeks, we'll have an, an article on this by John Stark. It's a really great piece, and uh, if you want to get it, you're not a subscriber already, we have a deal for you. Just go to orderct.com slash thecalling, and you can subscribe to Christianity Today for $10. It's just $10. You'll get 10 issues, full access to our website, all the archived editions available there, um, including our very first issue back in 1956, which is a great read right now, especially as we celebrate our 60th anniversary. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Here is Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile. The book is called The Road Back to You written by Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile, which I'm here interviewing right now. Uh, and we just talked a little bit with uh, some CT staff about the Enneagram. Uh, the Enneagram is blowing up right now. It feels to me like it's becoming a very big deal. I took it to my vacation at the beach, and I sat there and read the whole thing. And I, I've told you a little bit about the journey I've been on in terms of like thinking I was a four and then a three and then a seven. And now I guess I'm back at a four for now. The I should clarify for people who don't know, it's kind of like a personality thing, like a personality test, I guess. It's not really a typology. Test. Typology, right. So if people are familiar with the Myers-Briggs thing, if you if you hear people saying things like I'm an INFJ or whatever, and if you're interested in those kind of things, you'd be interested in this, I'd say for sure. So there's like the, you know, the fortune teller that tells you all the good stuff that's going to happen to you, and you really like that fortune teller. And then you go to a fortune teller who tells you bad things that are going to happen to you. You're like, well, okay, but that's the real one. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the feeling I got from the Enneagram was like, it was telling me, if I'm this, then you also struggle with this stuff as opposed to the personality type things where I was like, you're so great because of these reasons. So let's start with the first question. We always ask people, what would you say is your calling? And we'll start with Suzanne. Um, well, I'm 65, so I've been called to more than one thing. So one of my very favorite uh, quotes from Father Richard Rohr is, the best protection from the next word of God is the last word of God. I think overall... I'm called, and I am well-suited for it because of my personality, to be in relationships that have the potential to make the world a better place. Not just relationships with the people I love the most, but relationships with people I meet for an afternoon. Yeah. And I think I'm called to stay open to the, the voice and the working and the messages of the Spirit so that I'm aware when I'm supposed to do the next thing. Mm -hmm. And then I think I'm called to do the next right thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, those are that relationship piece that, uh, that seems to be like the, a big part of your, of what you're talking. I mean, obviously a lot of what the Enneagram is, is learning how to relate to people. When did you become aware of the 
relationship, and you can chime in anytime you want. Yeah, I just wonder when I get to my calling. You're, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna get there. It's it's hard because I'm doing like follow up on the question, and it's you're like a BB in a shoebox right now, aren't you? You're just <laughs> yeah. banging around in there. It's terrible. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, and th- you know, what makes it worse. I've realized is having people that totally know what's happening to you. We, we got know it. what's happening right now. That makes it a hundred percent worse. This is all going in the podcast because it's like gonna demonstrate the thesis, which is that you guys know what people are like. Yeah, we do. So as a relationship person, like that's a part of it. Do people like have that reaction to you? And and now I'm just talking to both of you. Do people have that reaction to you where they're like, quit, get out of my head. You're freaking me out, man. Generally, if I'm or we are talking about the Enneagram, people know that they came to hear us talk about the Enneagram. We both try not to do a lot of Enneagram talk with people we don't know about the Enneagram. But we get a lot. The line we get the most, I think, is you've been reading my mail. Yeah. Isn't that the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you know that about me? It's uncanny how much I you I think know you get me. it more than I do, though, because I'm a four, right? So the the romantic or the tr- the tragic romantic. Or the, and, you know, Suzanne's a giver helper, so she she really reaches out. I mean, she's an, you know, she... People just walk into that, you know. They're like, "Oh, I want to know," you know, because that she's so relational, right? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm relational too, but but it's it's different. I'm people wouldn't approach me that with that aggressively with that necessarily, you know what I mean? Like that a certain type would, but but I'm less of the kind that people go up and say that that say that too. What would you say your calling is? Since we're talking about that, okay. Now you're gonna see difference in thought, really, because yeah. I I can tell you exactly where I was when I figured it out. Sure. For a lot of my life, I had no idea. I was a therapist. I was a Episcopal priest. I was a songwriter. I wrote books and none of them made, and you know, one was a novel, one was a memoir. I was like, you are a vocationally confused human being. Like, which of those do you want to pick and make a life out of, you know? And then I, I was driving in West Texas, actually, and on my way to Lady Lodge to speak at Lady Lodge. And I was driving along and it hit me that my calling had always been to, to help people enter into conversation with the mystery of their own lives. And that all of those things, from writing books to being a therapist to being a all of those things were ways of helping to get into that kind of rich, meaningful conversation with people about what it means to be human in this world, you know? And that's, that, see, the difference between the two of us is, yeah. is pretty striking. Yeah. And you, and you have, so th- there's not a relationship piece there. There's not like an, it's more about yourself. It's just interesting because there's a, Compliment. There's a complimentary thing happening here where you're both interested in the enneagram, which is relational, but also self-oriented. Yeah. So I think on that score, I'm actually quite relational, but it's different. The way I connect with people is different. You know, I do think a lot about personal meaning. That's kind of like you know, I I, I wrestle in my head and my heart with with things. You know, about yeah. big questions of life. You know, kind of haunt me all the time. You know, when I was a younger man, I was a lot more self-absorbed. I was a lot more into my head and, you know, melodramatic and very, uh, yeah, I was a lot of work, right? I'm still a lot of work, but as I've gotten older, I've become far more concerned about other people too, you know, and trying to to invite them along on the same journey I'm on. Because of maturity, just... Yeah, I think it's that. I think it's, yeah, I mean, and having done a lot of work over the years, you know, and had a, had a bunch of train wrecks and, you know, you... you yeah. You know, you do get to a place in your life where you're like, well, I'd, I'd sure like to get out of here having moved the needle positively in a couple of lives, you know, yeah. that help people become richer, deeper, 
more fulfilled human beings. Suzanne, did you have that same trajectory or did you start with an interest in other people? I started with an interest in other people. I um, was adopted at birth. I never looked like anybody. And so what do you I, mean by that? Well, I don't, you know, if you're adopted, you don't look like. I knew that my brothers, who were 18 and 15 and biological children when they were born, they looked like my parents. And I didn't look like them or my parents. Huh. So because belonging was so important to me, I began to watch people's behavior so that I could belong on a behavioral basis rather than a how I look basis. Mm-hmm. I'm naturally relational. I think I'm, a, uh, I'm an extrovert. And I'm in the heart triad on the Enneagram, which means I'm a feeling-centered person. And I believe that we change the world one relationship at a time. I teach a good bit on college campuses, and I started listening to what they were telling me they wanted from their life. And one of the things that I kept hearing over and over and over was consistently either I want to belong or I want my life to have meaning. Those are the two things that I've always wanted. And I began to think, well, I think everybody wants that. Yeah. And actually, to turn to the Enneagram a little bit, the Enneagram helps you have enough compassion that you can find belonging. And when you're not so anxious about how you're like other people or how you're different from other people, then you have enough space to figure out what's yours to do so that you kind of are beginning to believe that your life's going to have meaning. What was the point at which you both discovered the Enneagram? And was it was it a light bulb thing? Did you know you would be this invested in it to the point you'd write a book? Well, I was a seminary student at Denver Seminary at a time when that was a very conservative institution. And uh, I was on a personal retreat. Now, I have to sort of say that my time there was was sort of an, an unhappy time because I really felt like I didn't talk about not belonging. I mean, I really felt uh, like I was a fish out of water in that environment. And and uh, I'd grown up a Catholic kid, and I'd had I had a real Catholic imagination, you know, sort of a view of the world, yeah. you know. So I'm at this Catholic retreat center, right? And I ran across a book by Richard Rohr, and I pick it up, and I reading it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is, and I'm in a counseling program, by the way. So I'm, you know, I'm getting a master's in counseling. I'm reading this and I'm like, (laughs) are you kidding me? Like, this is crazy, but it's uncannily accurate. You know, like, it's like, this is like amazing to me. And this would be an incredible resource for people. Like, and I went, I went to back to school on Monday and I, I think, I don't, remember, I don't remember which professor it was, if he was a systematics professor. And I told him, have you ever heard of the Enneagram? And he looked at me like, I might as well have asked him, have, do you use astrology? <laughs> like, yeah. or, or do you use the pentagram? Yeah. And and he said, you know, that, you, that you've got to put that away and get it out of your house, you know? Did so, he know what it was? Had he heard um, of it? What, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, you know, probably some folk legend, weird, you know, evangelical folk legend, right. you know, popping around <laughs> like a church. Like Masons or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so he's, I think he spoke, uh, actually, I have to laugh because a number of those professors now are oblates in Catholic monasteries, you know, right. they're still at Denver Seminary and they're running courses that use the Enneagram as part of the self discovery <laughs> yeah. for, their, for their students. It's like, okay, well, maybe, maybe things really do change. But that was my introduction to it. And then, um, you know, years later, I went to a couple of trainings and then my full immersion that was working with Suzanne. So you're a four. I'm, I'm, it's hard doing this podcast because I feel like half of the people listening will have no idea what the Enneagram is. Half of the people listening will be very familiar with it. So let's just 
to provide context, the four is like the like you said, the tragic romantic type, and you want to feel special and unique. I would I would assume that going to seminary would be a difficult time for that type. It would like be a crazily weird, difficult time. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's particularly at that age, you know, to and and uh, you know, fours always see what's missing in the world, what's lacking, mm. uh, and we have a real hard time figuring out how to belong, how to fit in. We always have this sort of sense like, gosh, I just don't fit. I mean, I'm like, you know, how do I fit in here, you know? And we struggle with envy. Like everybody else seems normal and happy. And we look at ourselves and we say, (laughs) what's missing here that I have to go on a lifelong search to find so I can fit in, right? You know, so it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it sounds all very um, traumatic because it is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Seminary was a was a difficult time because I kept finding how I didn't fit or what was missing instead of what was there. Sure. As I've gotten older, I do less of that. I and when I go to the space of you know focusing on the stuff that's missing, I can get out of it faster. I have a memory of seminary as a place where I felt very like um, frustrated by falsity that was around me, like a lot of like. Pretending, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, I, so I you're have making to say, hand motions at well, me like I'm definitely a four. No, we didn't say you're definitely a four. We would never say that. That's something you have to figure out. But was. but that kind of fixated attention on authenticity of mm-hmm. being of being authentic is a hallmark feature of fours. Okay. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. Yeah. For me, uh, somebody gave me Richard Rohr's first book on the Enneagram, which is long before the one that's currently. That's the one I read. Ninety two. I read it. I devoured it. And i am uh, been married for 30 years to a really great guy who I'm crazy about, who's a United Methodist pastor. But prior to that, he was a Catholic priest. He belonged to the Vincentian community. And as a former priest, he and I talked a lot about the Enneagram and about Richard's book. And he just called Richard one day and said, I'm Joe Stabile, and this is my story. And uh, my wife and I'd like to come see you. And Richard said, okay. So we went to see him, and then we went again and again. And he was really our spiritual mentor for a, a number of years. And he said to me, um, you have really taken to the Enneagram. It's like it's it's organic for you. I don't think that was the word he used, but that would be my word today. And then I said, well, you know, I might, I might want to do something someday. And he said, well, I tell you, I would advise you to study it and read about it, think about it, and watch people for five years, and try to talk about it. And I did that, and I've been teaching for 23. Was there ever a time when either of you doubted the calling that you talked about? Sure. When? Gosh. Every every month when I don't get any money in the mail. (laughs) Golly. Uh, You know what? That's an interesting, that's an interesting question to explore from an Enneagram perspective as well. But I, my husband and I, I was a single divorced mom with three children when we married. He adopted those three and we had a fourth. I had started, I married Joe when I was 37 and I had started a spiritual journey probably at 30, significant spiritual journey. And I think I went through all the normal things like, um, why would I think I would have a voice? Why would I think this is mine to do? And I was struggling with wanting to be a really good parent to my four children and a really good wife to Joe and a really good pastor's wife, which is a whole different thing. I My goal in life was to coach college basketball. And I did that. But Your goal I, in life? 
was the coach when I was a college? kid. That's okay. what I wanted to do. Okay, was yeah. coach college basketball. Got it. And I was the first women's coach at SMU after Title IX. So I wow. did that. But I grew up in a coaching world, which is not exactly the same as being a pastor's wife. Right. And I, I don't think anybody ever looked across the room when I was a child and said to the other people there, you know, Suzanne, make a really good pastor's wife. <laughs> no, I, I don't think, I, no. think, I think that's an accurate assessment, <laughs> self-assessment. Uh-huh. Well done. <laughs> so I doubted my uh, ways of being rather than doubting my call. I knew that God had something for me to do. I think God has something for everybody to do. And, you know, I teach a lot with the, the book of Jonah, because you can teach anything with the book of Jonah, right? And part I didn't of the, know that. yeah, oh, you can. If anybody ever needs something like right on the spot, uh-huh. just open Jonah. Okay. It, it works like a Because it involves whales and adventure. It's yeah. really great. My wife and I are working through Jeremiah right now, and I wouldn't say the same thing. No, no I wouldn't, no, nor I would wouldn't I. Either. No, I've never mm-hmm. taught anything with Jeremiah, but Jonah works. <laughs> she, some, for some reason, she brought it up. She wanted to read it. I was like, okay. All righty. Well, um, you know, God sends Jonah to Nineveh because the people are in trouble. And God can't wait any longer, and Jonah doesn't go. Now, if I was God, I would think, those people are in trouble, and Jonah's not going, so I'll send somebody else. But no. God (laughs) waits for Jonah to get swallowed by a whale and waste all the time and get thrown overboard and all that that goes on so that Jonah goes to Nineveh. And I'm saying all that just to say that I think whatever God has for you to do, God's going to kind of circle back and circle back and circle back until you do what yours to do. I sometimes doubt that I'm good at it or that I'm doing it right or that I'm the person for it. Like right now, I'm gone from home so much, and my husband um, has a new church appointment as of July 1st, and I've got six grandchildren. You know, it's, it's, it's tough to think about, is this really right? So you just keep asking. But um, I think for me, the question that confirms is is there fruit from my work? And there's lots of it. What what kind of fruit? Mostly oranges. Oranges. Some grapefruit. I like mangoes. I'm kind of obsessed with mangoes right now. Wow. I'm happy for both of you, but I'm <laughs> saving the world by helping marriages stay together. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of working on how you can I parent see. your child you're and ca- not good. kick you're, them out. You're that comparing kind. apples to oranges yeah. is what you're clearly, doing most of the time. Clearly. Yeah. Different okay. fruit. All right. Well, I think, you know, in it's an interesting question about you know, have you ever doubted your calling? Yeah. Um, I think it took me so long to find, to actually give language to it that by the time I got it, I was like so relieved. I was like, you know, like, okay, now I got it, you know? It, and I was, you know, in midlife, you know? It's, which, isn't, which isn't to say that I was ineffective at doing things prior to that. It just means that I was doing things instinctively, not knowing what to call it. And knowing that what, what most excited me, the thing that most thrilled me was when I, I saw a light of understanding go on in someone's eyes about where they learned something about themselves or about God or about the world that was, you know, an epiphany for them. Yeah. That, but an epiphany that, that brought them more deeply into an awareness of, of their belovedness, of, of who they were, all those sorts of things. And, you know, now I understand in many ways why that was the case. So I'm, I don't know if I've ever doubted my call, but I think as I've gotten older, I've I've seen it and been able to to delight in it. I think I until I was able to do that, I was either confused or or feeling like, you know, like I, I'm missing a wheel here. I can't figure out what what I do, but I'm just going to keep going with what I do. And then one day I woke up and realized, no, 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 no. That's actually all four wheels, kid. What you're doing right now is all four wheels. Yeah, you know, 
I would say that people ask Joe and me more questions about discernment than anything else. And I've learned from that how much grace there is in knowing what's yours to do. And I think the Enneagram helps you know what's yours to do because you can clearly see what you're gifted for. And it's okay that you don't have the gifts for something else. You know, I, I would be terrible as a person who worked quietly in a back office somewhere and not if I didn't get to be with people and I would be terrible at that. I'm not suited for that. That's not how I'm put together. It helps a lot with the process of elimination. Absolutely. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What, is, what would you say in the work you guys have been doing and in the, in the ways in which you work out your calling, what has been the biggest struggle that you find yourself confronting? The biggest struggle for me is being away from home. What do you think you have to be away from home to do what you do? Is that like an integral piece of it? Well, I'm relational, you know. Yeah. So yeah. We've been together now for a couple of hours. Just think about how different this would have been if I'd been on the phone. Right. Yeah. The that's an important piece of this podcast is I refuse to do it. Yeah. If people aren't here. Yeah. Yes. Or if I'm not with them. Exactly. And I'm I'm so excited about our book mm-hmm. and I'm honored every day that Ian invited me into the writing project to do this together. I love to teach. I think in honest humility, I'm good at it. And I I can't do from video or film or um, DVDs what I can do if I'm in the room with people. So yes, I think I am called to be on the road. And it's a constant discernment question about how much, how much I should be gone, how much I should be home. I, all four of my children live in the area where I live. All six of my grandchildren are there. I would have to say that my love for them and my love for Joe is so deep that it's a sacrifice for me to not be there. But I think call involves sacrifice. You know, I, the year, this year has been, a, you know, it's been so eventful and full and uh, that it's hard for me to actually get a handle on what What's happening, you know, in, in some ways, I feel like I've got a couple of sneakers in the dryer right now. It's been a year full of, you know, beautiful things, hard things and beautiful things. Yeah. And my daughter got married after, you know, a hard season. She married a beautiful, wonderful person. And that, so that was a very moving, wonderful thing. But, you know, I, two days earlier, I turned in a manuscript and then, you know, my dogs died on the same day. And, huh. you know, all that happened in about four months, three months. And, you know, so it's been, yeah, it's been a bit of a toss around. And, and actually, I have to say, even though I really love people, like right now, if I could be hiding in a closet somewhere, like I'm not even really that much of an introvert, but I, I do have this moment where I'm like, I really, 
got to go. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> I'd just like to point out the Enneagram piece of all this. So if you ask me what I struggle with, I can't remember the question anymore, but it had to do with... What's your biggest struggle? What's the biggest struggle? So that's clear to me as a two on the Enneagram. But Ian, as a four, is comfortable in struggle. He is comfortable in melancholy. He can bear witness to his own pain and to pain in other people. Well, when you can bear witness to pain without having to fix it, that includes your own pain. So it's a question that automatically is going to get a very different response mm-hmm. from us yeah. because of our Enneagram numbers. So it's mm-hmm. a perfect way for us to talk about that. Yeah. Because I can tell you what I'm struggling with because I talk about it and I pray about it and I worry about it and I talk to Joe about it and I talk to my spiritual director about it right. because I'm struggling. Yeah. And it's home base for Ian. And I can write about it and I can do that sort of thing uh, because it's very natural for a four to want to come in slant at that question. It, it would have been easier for me to come up with a poem to answer that question than it would have been to answer it directly. Yeah. Or, to a, come song. In, or a song. He's written some So just come doozies. in sideways, you know, to come in sideways because you're asking someone who feels a ton a question uh, that uh, stirs so many feelings that it actually would, would be easier for me to try and plug it into a song so that you could actually effectively experience it with me than to simply tell it to you discursively. So now I want to make something clear here. This I think Suzanne will back me up on this. So, right. Like I am not a depressed person who wanders around, you know, like with, with a, like a little hospital stick with, you know, some drugs going into my arm to keep me up. You know, it, yeah. it that's not the case. I mean, I'm actually. Just ignore the fact that he's wearing a hair shirt and eating locusts. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I actually, you know, have a very sort of, you know, I think pretty wry sense of humor and, and love to laugh and, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm an energized kind of human being, you know, but um, that whole realm of of being comfortable with conflicted feelings, of of wrestling with big ideas, that sort of thing. Yeah, it is, it is, a, it is a natural space for me. And, and, and hopefully what comes out of that is stuff that's of benefit to other people. That's not just me looking in and, you know, thinking, you know, I'm just so weird and different. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not at home. I mean, at least Tom York wrote creep, you know I mean? Like he could, there's a, that kind of four kind of thing, you know? Yeah. That's at least I'm giving something to the world, you know? Yeah, totally. The, it seems like the motivation for you isn't meeting lots of people, building lots of relationships. It's, it's more about how you're affecting those people. Right. It's like what you have to give to those yeah. people. Uh, if someone asked me the other day, do you like speaking to big crowds or little crowds? And I've done both. So I've spoken with thousands of people and and I will always take 50. Huh. Now, I yeah. love speaking to big crowds. I'm not saying I don't like it. I'll tend to sneak out a little bit. But for me to be with in a, on a weekend with 50 people or 100 people or something like that, 50, enough so that I can walk around and Recognize connect. people. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. love connecting with people. I mean, I'm not like a, a guy that doesn't, I'm not a detached person from other people it's just that i connect at a deeply emotional level with people and that happens better when i'm in a room sitting on the floor with them how has working out this calling um changed you are you picking up on this calling theme i don't think i knew about the calling theme when we started this program did you Oh, they didn't tell you the name of the podcast. No, they didn't tell us the name of the podcast. But it's interesting. Oh, they I'm did. Fascinated. They wrote it down. They did? Yeah, it says The Calling. That's <laughs> oh, the name of the podcast. I thought it was a band. <laughs> it's called, it's oh, called the, call. the Calling. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I should have led with that in the explanation. Yeah, but so far, so good. You know, we can talk about anything. You could have Well, I'm so glad to, to, to have you say that because I kept thinking, well, we're not getting it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
you're not pleasing them. Yeah. Whatever and I'm thinking, for. let's keep going because I'm <laughs> trying to figure it out. I'm asking seven versions of the same question. That's oh what the podcast gosh. is. Okay, I was great. like, dude, you got to come up with some new questions. You're really, you're really riding this like a p- <laughs> pony at a birthday party. You're just going around in circles on calling. <laughs> now, I would say that in in sort of contextually, we've been having this conversation before the podcast because I wouldn't want folks to think that when we get in a room with people that we start, you know, right away trying to figure out who they are right. or what they do. So this is an extension of a con, you know, a conversation that yeah. you initiated about two hours ago. And so we're still exactly. having fun talking about, right. about it. No, that's a good point. So we, we would not normally under any circumstance be sort of thrusting guesses. Right. You know, I mean, I don't actually look at people like numbers and at all. I can tell you, so for, that would be a horrible thing to think you could reduce a human being down to a number or a category. That'd be, that'd be a terrible thing. I would think I would join... Thousands of voices in saying that it is the basis for my faith life. Trusting what I don't know and can't predict and can't see and can't imagine the outcome, but just taking the next step and the next step. So Joe went to high school seminary at 14. He's had a spiritual director. You say high school seminary? High school seminary. He's had a spiritual director. He's 69. He's had a spiritual director since he was 14. And he has more faith than anybody I know. And I live with that. And um, I've, I'm beginning after 30 years with him to feel foolish when I fret, to feel silly when I worry, to feel somehow like I'm, um, I'm, I'm choosing disconnection when I don't trust the safety net that has always been there. So one of the things he says a lot is he says, you know, I don't know if I've been faithful, but what I do know is that God's been faithful to me. And I think that is what I'm, I've learned right there. I hope I've been faithful, but I don't know if I have, but I'm telling you, God has been faithful to me. Your dedication to the book was to Joe and the kids and how they're relational. That's right. <laughs> and mine is dedicated to my family and my two dead dogs. <laughs> There you have it. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. That's amazing to me. I well, just went, oh my gosh, you like dedicated grandchildren and relationships right. and loves and hearts. Right. And I'm like, and for Wendell and Ella, my beloved companions. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that this to me is meaningful. I'm not at all sad by that. Right. That does not make me sad. That's like, oh yeah, of course. Oh, that's beautiful. Like we were talking today. I We're doing this, this thing tomorrow, right? This conference. And I'm like, I'm opening, like, you know, just sort of opening up the thing, the talks. And I, I said, I had this, I had this really great introduction in my mind, and it was about the dogs. <laughs> and I thought, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be so moving. I wasn't going to tell you that's what the story was about until right now. And I was like, oh, it's going to be so moving. And then I went, now, this is where the Enneagram helps, uh-huh. okay? Uh-huh. I was, I, for about half an hour, I'm swooning over this story about my dogs, like, <laughs> dying on the same day and how connected we're all going to be at that moment, you know? Uh-huh. And then I realized, do you know that the entire room is going to be slack-jawed when you get to the end of that thing? Like, they're going to be looking at you the way that has they have always looked at you when you've done that. Uh-huh. And maybe now's the time to... Stop doing that and realize that there's going to be four other fours in that room. They're going to be crying. And 260 people looking at you like, I cannot bear this guy for another six or seven hours. I'm relating to this a lot because do you find yourself like often telling the weirdest, like the weirdest, like personal stories? (laughs) And people are like, why do you do that? I have this experience every week in community group. 
I will say a thing, so, just like completely off the wall stuff that people are like, well, they He's don't even know what dumb. to do with it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, now, so I have you pull back. It. Do you actively pull back from that? You have, you've, it seems like you're censoring yourself with the dog story in particular. You're saying, well, no, I have no, more self awareness. I have more self knowledge now to know that, okay, no, wait a minute. So you're speaking to a room full of people, and, you know, they, they're not all, and this is one of the benefits of the Enneagram is realizing. They're not all you. They don't all see the world the way that you do. They don't process information. They don't react to things. Like, you know, there are a lot of people in the room be real turned off at that moment. Now, you can't please everybody at any given moment. You get 260 people in a room. It's not your job to please everybody, right? But what you can do is just take into account that not everybody is going to see the world the way that you do. And there's probably a better way into this conversation that will be, will have the, will be less likely to alienate I want to alienate the least number of people, right? I want them to feel as included as possible. So I'm going to pick something different. Suzanne's like going, thank gosh. I mean, you know, I'm going to pick something different. But to your point, see, this is how you know, we chase the tail. The Enneagram reveals how we chase the tail, right? We, we sometimes say those things because we think I'm gonna, if I'm outrageous enough, people will, I'm going to fit. You know, people are going to, like, it's almost like this weird thing. And then we do it and then people look at us like, You'll never fit. Yeah, you know? I think and in my brain, we try it again, we try it again, and we try it again. I think work. in my brain, I feel like I'm paving the way for some kind of everyone's being honest with each other mm-hmm. interaction, modeling that for deep everybody. emotional yes, connection. Yeah, emotional yes, connection. Yes. Constantly trying to model stuff. Yes, if and you people just are constantly do... reacting to me with the most restrained. Uh, if I'm being not generous, which is not this is not fair, but like quote unquote fake, you know, responses. Um, did you love Catcher in the Rye? I don't think I read it. Actually. Okay, all right. I had a bad English program, and oh. I also got C's in that English. Program, oh, okay. Because so. most, of this, you know, the main character Holden Caulfield, and a lot of fours will tell you that book changed my life because he hated phonies. Yeah, that's yeah. what he, he was always talking about. How much he hated phonies, yeah. and they're like fours will tell you all the time. When I remember, I remember reading Holden Caulfield and feeling like, oh my gosh, that guy's me. What would you say is your biggest fear in working out your calling? So can I tell you a story? If I haven't been clear, I'm crazy about my husband. Right. <laughs> and uh, he's good looking and smart and all that. And lots of women uh, flirt with him, which he works to stop. And so there's a woman in our church that's kind of flirty with him. And I'm just getting all whipped up about her. Then I start rah rah about her at home. And we have a rule at our house that <laughs> if there's anything that's conflictual for us, you can't talk about it in the bedroom, at the kitchen table, in the bathroom, or in the car. Where are you supposed to talk about it? Well, you got to make an appointment. You know, you got to go outside, or okay. you got to go some. You got you got to really want to talk about it real bad. You, you just, just can't all the places yeah, that I yeah. have conversations yeah, with yeah, my wife. Well, that'll this will really help with anything conflictual then, because you won't be talking about okay. it. So I was breaking the rule mm-hmm. and just rah rah about this woman everywhere. And just to give you one clue, I started into Joe's office one Sunday morning at the church, and she was standing in the doorway of his office, and she held up her hand and said. Uh, wait, he'll be out in a minute. We're not quite finished. And I thought, yeah, you are. <laughs> and all the color drained out of Joe's face. It was like, we're done. <laughs> so I kept on and on. So I, I was talking to my spiritual director and my therapist about the fact that I can't just, I just can't seem to put this down. Like, why can't I put this down? And I talked about it and talked about it. And finally he said, well, okay, stop. Could we not talk about her anymore? Could we just talk about you? And I said, Okay. And he said, I'm just interested in why you have so much anxiety that you have to hang it on her bones. And my fear since that encounter is that I'm not mindful 
of the anxiety or the fear or the judgment or the what theology or the whatever that I hang on other people's bones in the context of the relationships that I feel called to build that are honoring and freeing. Okay, so we're going to show a difference again here, right? I would say that um, uh, of late, something that has struck me this year is two, two things. One is that, um, you know, in the heat of all the stuff that, that has been going on this year, that uh, I've been surprised by, my, by the number of insecurities and uh, the depth of frailty sometimes that exists within me. It has surprised me. Like, you know, where you go, you, I've stepped back and gone, wow, like it's been a long time since you've been that aware or in touch with those things, you know, that, you know, I might, you know, as someone who's my age and of experience, you think, man, they're still here. You know what I mean? Like they're just, they're still here. Um, and I think one of the things that I would be afraid about in my calling in life, just in general, is because this is something I've thought a lot about lately. I think now at this point in my life, my calling is in life, right? So that's not a vocation, is to figure out how to love and be compassionate toward myself, towards others, to um, see beyond myself, to actually, so that I can really finally know how to love and be loved. Or to say, I at least got on that road to where it wasn't about, you know, wanting to be understood or wanting to be this or that, but it was, it was you know, it was for once trying to be more like Suzanne in some ways where my focus is more outward, my, my focus is on, and also, or balanced, you know, um, where I feel like there's nothing missing and, and I've learned how to love other people. My fear would be that, that I would end very far from that. So I'll have to settle for getting on the road. No, that's good. Yeah. The road back to you. Oh my gosh. See, I was marketing. You cued me up. Very good. Are you proud of me? Well done. (laughs) Well done. Good and faithful marketeer. (laughs) Yeah. I have one final question. It is, no, really, what is your calling? (laughs) Not really. That's not the final question. (laughs) It is, um, if you could get into a time machine, go back in time, step out of that time machine, (laughs) introduce yourself to yourself, uh, what would you say to him and her? I have an answer. You are not what you survived. Just having, you know, grown up in an alcoholic family with lots of distress, it took me a long time to figure out. If I could have said to my 21-year-old self, you're not what you survived, like, it would save some time. I just got goosebumps, and I haven't been through all that much, but I yeah. get that. Uh, I would go back to October the 13th, 1950, which is when I was born and when I was given up for adoption. And I would tell me that it doesn't have anything to do with me. That being given up for adoption is not about me in any way. And you know, it's, it's interesting because there's some things in life that you're never not. You know, there's some things that you get beyond and all of that. But uh, growing up in the home uh, with a, an angry, alcoholic father is something that you will never not be. And growing up adopted is something I will never not be. I will never not be adopted. And for both of us, it's a hole in our souls. And I have, I've come to believe that you can't fill the hole. So I'm, I'm not trying to do that anymore. I'm trying to live in every day into believing that I'm not the reason it's there. It's so interesting, you know, and I think about each of these numbers, right? You know, these are strategies for trying to remain in charge and to uh, make sense of your own life and to find 
the love you believe you're unworthy of. And I just think this is like right out, this is an Edenic, you know, kind of tragic, you know, thing. You know, we're all wandering around trying to to find this, this for to remove the sense of forsakenness that, you know, I mean, think about even Western literature, you know, like it's always about a, the child, the son who's gone looking for the father, like in the Odyssey, you know, and interestingly enough, you know, the gospel is a father who goes in search of a child. You know, it's like the inverse of what our own literary sort of headwaters would say. But I think we are looking, and and I think if uh, each number or type of where every person could realize in themselves to let that go, whatever it is that they're trying to do on their own, whatever strategy they're employing to, to get the love and, and the, the sense of forsakenness removed from their lives, that they would discover that they, they are in possession already of what they've longed for. You've been listening to The Calling. Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile are the authors of The Road Back to You, available now. They have a podcast called The Road Back to You. I'd highly recommend it. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Ray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.